Welcome back, everyone, to Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. We've been receiving some great reviews here lately for 1001 Stories for the Road, and we'll share them at the end of the show. And now, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan of the Apes, Chapter 23, Brother Men. When Darnot regained consciousness, he found himself lying upon a bed of soft ferns and grasses beneath a little A-shaped shelter of boughs. At his feet, an opening looked out upon a green sward, and at a little distance beyond was the dense wall of jungle and forest. He was very lame and sore and weak, and as full consciousness returned, he felt the sharp torture of many cruel wounds and the dull aching of every bone and muscle in his body as a result of the hideous beating he had received. Even the turning of his head caused him such excruciating agony that he lay still with closed eyes for a long time. He tried to piece out the details of his adventure prior to the time he lost consciousness to see if they would explain his present whereabouts. He wondered if he were among friends or foes. At length he recollected the whole hideous scene at the stake and finally recalled the strange white figure in whose arms he had sunk into oblivion. Darnot wondered what fate lay in store for him now. He could neither see nor hear any signs of life about him. The incessant hum of the jungle, the rustling of millions of leaves, the buzz of insects, the voices of the birds and monkeys seemed blended into a strangely soothing purr, as though he lay apart, far from the myriad life whose sounds came to him only as a blurred echo. At length he fell into a quiet slumber, nor did he awake again until afternoon. Once more he experienced the strange sense of utter bewilderment that had marked his earlier awakening. But soon he recalled the recent past, and looking through the opening at his feet, he saw the figure of a man squatting on his haunches. The broad muscular back was turned toward him, but tanned though it was, Darnot saw that it was the back of a white man, and he thanked God. The Frenchman called faintly. The man turned, and rising, came toward the shelter. His face was very handsome, the handsomest, thought Darnot, that he'd ever seen. Stooping, he crawled into the shelter beside the wounded officer and placed a cool hand upon his forehead. Darnot spoke to him in French, but the man only shook his head, sadly, it seemed to the Frenchman. Then Darnot tried English, but still the man shook his head. Italian, Spanish, and German brought similar discouragement. Darnot knew a few words of Norwegian, Russian, Greek, and also had a smattering of the language of one of the West Coast Negro tribes, but the man denied them all. After examining Darnot's wounds, the man left the shelter and disappeared. In half an hour he was back with fruit and a hollow gourd-like vegetable filled with water. Darnot drank and ate a little. He was surprised that he had no fever. Again he tried to converse with this strange nurse, but the attempt was useless. Suddenly the man hastened from the shelter, only to return a few minutes later with several pieces of bark and, wonder of wonders, a lead pencil. Squatting beside Darnot, he wrote for a minute on the smooth inner surface of the bark. Then he handed it to the Frenchman. Darnot was astonished to see, in plain, print-like characters, a message in English. I am Tarzan of the Apes. Who are you? Can you read this language? Darnot seized the pencil. Then he stopped. This strange man wrote English. Evidently he was an Englishman. Yes, said Darnot. I read English. I speak it also. Now we may talk. First, let me thank you for all that you have done for me. The man only shook his head and pointed to the pencil and the bark. Mon Dieu, cried Darnot. If you're English, why is it then that you cannot speak English? And then, in a flash, it came to him. The man was a mute, possibly a deaf mute. So Darnot wrote a message on the bark in English. I am Paul Darnot. Lieutenant in the Navy of France, I thank you for what you have done for me. You have saved my life, and all that I have is yours. May I ask how it is 
that one who writes English does not speak it. Tarzan's reply filled Darnot with still greater wonder. I speak only the language of my tribe, the great apes who were Kerchaks, and a little of the languages of Tantor, the elephant, and Numa, the lion, and of the other folks of the jungle I understand. With a human being I have never spoken, except once, with Jane Porter, by signs. This is the first time I have spoken with another of my kind through written words. Darnot was mystified. It seemed incredible that there lived upon earth a full-grown man who had never spoken with a fellow man, and still more preposterous that such a one could read and write. He looked again at Tarzan's message, except once with Jane Porter. That was the American girl who had been carried into the jungle by a gorilla. A sudden light commenced to dawn on Darnot. This, then, was the gorilla. He seized the pencil and wrote, Where is Jane Porter? And Tarzan replied below, Back with her people in the cabin of Tarzan the Apes. She is not dead, then? Where was she? What happened to her? She is not dead. She was taken by Turkaz to be his wife, but Tarzan of the Apes took her away from Turkaz and killed him before he could harm her. None in all the jungle may face Tarzan of the Apes in battle and live. I am Tarzan of the Apes, mighty fighter. Darnot wrote, I am glad she is safe. It pains me to write. I will rest a while. And then Tarzan, Yes, rest. When you are well, I shall take you back to your people. For many days Darnot lay upon his bed of soft ferns. The second day a fever had come, and Darnot thought it meant infection, and he knew that he would die. An idea came to him. He wondered why he had not thought of it before. He called Tarzan and indicated by signs that he would write. And when Tarzan had fetched the bark and pencil, Darnot wrote, Can you go to my people and lead them here? I will write a message that you may take to them, and they will follow you. Tarzan shook his head, and taking the bark, wrote, I had thought of that the first day, but I dared not. The great apes come often to this spot, and if they found you here, wounded and alone, they would kill you. Darnot turned on his side and closed his eyes. He did not wish to die, but he felt that he was going, for the fever was mounting higher and higher. That night, he lost consciousness. For three days he was in delirium, and Tarzan sat beside him and bathed his head and hands and washed his wounds. On the fourth day, the fever broke as suddenly as it had come, but it left Darnot a shadow of his former self, and very weak. Tarzan had to lift him that he might drink from the gourd. The fever had not been the result of infection, as Darnot had thought, but one of those that commonly attack whites in the jungles of Africa, and either kill or leave them as suddenly as Darnot's had left him. Two days later, Darnot was tottering about the amphitheater, Tarzan's strong arm about him to keep him from falling. They sat beneath the shade of a great tree, and Tarzan found some smooth bark that they might converse. Darnot wrote the first message. What can I do to repay you for all that you have done for me? And Tarzan, in reply, wrote, Teach me to speak the language of men. And so Darnot commenced at once, pointing out familiar objects and repeating their names in French, for he thought that it would be easier to teach this man his own language since he understood it himself best of all. It meant nothing to Tarzan, of course, for he could not tell one language from another. So when he pointed to the word man, which he had printed upon a piece of bark, he learned from Darnot that it was pronounced om, and in the same way he was taught to pronounce ape, singe, and tree, arbor. He was a most eager student, and in two more days had mastered so much French that he could speak little sentences such as, That is a tree. This is grass. I am hungry. And the like. 
but Darnot found that it was difficult to teach him the French construction upon a foundation of English. The Frenchman wrote little lessons for him in English and had Tarzan repeat them in French, but as a literal translation was usually very poor French, Tarzan was often confused. Darnot realized now that he'd made a mistake, but it seemed too late to go back and do it all over again and force Tarzan to unlearn all that he had learned, especially as they were rapidly approaching a point where they would be able to converse. On the third day after the fever broke, Tarzan wrote a message asking Darnot if he felt strong enough to be carried back to the cabin. Tarzan was as anxious to go as Darnot, for he longed to see Jane again. It had been hard for him to remain with the Frenchman all these days for that very reason, and that he had unselfishly done so spoke more glowingly of his nobility of character than even did his rescuing the French officer from Mbanga's clutches. Darnot, only too willing to attempt the journey, wrote, But you cannot carry me all the distance through this tangled forest. Tarzan laughed. Mais oui, he said, and Darnot laughed aloud to hear the phrase that he'd used so often glide from Tarzan's tongue. So they set out, Darnot marveling as had Clayton and Jane at the wondrous strength and agility of the ape-man. Mid-afternoon brought them to the clearing, and as Tarzan dropped to earth from the branches of the last tree, his heart leaped and bounded against his ribs in anticipation of seeing Jane so soon again. No one was in sight outside the cabin, and Darnot was perplexed to note that neither the cruiser nor the arrow was at anchor in the bay. An atmosphere of loneliness pervaded the spot, which caught suddenly at both men as they strode toward the cabin. Neither spoke, yet both knew before they opened the closed door what they would find beyond. Tarzan lifted the latch and pushed the great door in upon its wooden hinges. It was as they had feared. The cabin was deserted. The men turned and looked at one another. Darnot knew that his people thought him dead. But Tarzan thought only of the woman who had kissed him in love and now had fled from him while he was serving one of her people. A great bitterness rose in his heart. He would go away, far into the jungle, and join his tribe. Never would he see one of his own kind again, nor could he bear the thought of returning to the cabin. He would leave that forever behind him with the great hopes he had nursed there of finding his own race and becoming a man among men. And the Frenchman, Darnot? What of him? He could get along as Tarzan had. Tarzan did not want to see him more. He wanted to get away from everything that might remind him of Jane. As Tarzan stood upon the threshold brooding, Darnot had entered the cabin. Many comforts he saw that had been left behind. He recognized numerous articles from the cruiser, a camp oven, some kitchen utensils, a rifle, and many rounds of ammunition, canned foods, blankets, two chairs, and a cot, and several books and periodicals, mostly American. They must intend returning, thought Darnot. He walked over to the table that John Clayton had built so many years before to serve as a desk, and on it he saw two notes addressed to Tarzan of the Apes. One was in a strong masculine hand and was unsealed. The other, in a woman's hand, was sealed. "'Here are two messages for you, Tarzan of the Apes,' cried Darnot, turning toward the door. But his companion was not there. Darnot walked to the door and looked out. Tarzan was nowhere in sight. He called aloud, but there was no response. "'Mon Dieu!' exclaimed Darnot. "'He has left me. I feel it. He has gone back into his jungle.' and left me here alone. And then he remembered the look on Tarzan's face when they had discovered that the cabin was empty. Such a look as the hunter sees in the eyes of the wounded deer he has wantonly brought down. The man had been hard hit. Darnot realized it now. But why? He could not understand. The Frenchman looked about him. The loneliness and the horror of the place commenced to get on his nerves. Already weakened by the ordeal of suffering and sickness he had passed through, to be left here, alone, beside this awful jungle, never to hear a human voice or see a human face, in constant dread of savage beasts 
and more terribly savage men? A prey to solitude and hopelessness. It was awful. And far to the east, Tarzan of the Apes was speeding through the middle terrace back to his tribe. Never had he traveled with such reckless speed. He felt that he was running away from himself, that by hurtling through the forest like a frightened squirrel, he was escaping from his own thoughts. But no matter how fast he went, he found them always with him. He passed above the sinuous body of Saber, the lioness, going in the opposite direction, toward the cabin, thought Tarzan. What could Darnot do against Saber? Or if Bolgani, the gorilla, should come upon him? Or Numa, the lion? Or cruel Sheeta? Tarzan paused in his flight. What are you, Tarzan? he asked aloud. An ape? Or a man? If you are an ape, you would do as the apes would do. Leave one of your own kind to die in the jungle if it suited your whim to go elsewhere. If you are a man, you will return to protect your kind. You will not run away from one of your own people, because one of them has run away from you. Darnot closed the cabin door. He was very nervous. Even brave men, and Darnot was a brave man, are sometimes frightened by solitude. He loaded one of the rifles and placed it within easy reach. Then he went to the desk and took up the unsealed letter addressed to Tarzan. Possibly it contained word that his people had but left the beach temporarily. He felt that it would be no breach of ethics to read this letter, so he took the enclosure from the envelope and read, To Tarzan of the Apes, We thank you for the use of your cabin, and are sorry that you did not permit us the pleasure of seeing and thanking you in person. We have harmed nothing, but have left many things for you which may add to your comfort and safety here in your lonely home. If you know the strange white man who saved our lives so many times and brought us food, and if you can converse with him, thank him also for his kindness. We sail within the hour, never to return, but we wish you and that other jungle friend to know that we shall always thank you for what you did for strangers on your shore, and that we should have done infinitely more to reward you both had you given us the opportunity. Very respectfully, William Cecil Clayton. Never to return, muttered Darnot, and threw himself downward upon the cot. An hour later, he started up, listening. Something was at the door trying to enter. Darnot reached for the loaded rifle and placed it to his shoulder. Dusk was falling, and the interior of the cabin was very dark, but the man could see the latch moving from its place. He felt his hair rising upon his scalp. Gently the door opened, and a thin crack showed something standing just beyond. Darnot sighted along the blue barrel at the crack of the door, and then he pulled the trigger. Chapter 24 Lost Treasure When the expedition returned, following their fruitless endeavor to secure Darnot, Captain Dufran was anxious to steam away as quickly as possible, and all save Jane had acquiesced. "'No,' she said determinedly. "'I shall not go, nor should you, "'for there are two friends in that jungle "'who will come out of it some day "'expecting to find us awaiting them. "'Your officer, Captain Dufran, is one of them, "'and the forest man who has saved the lives "'of every member of my father's party is the other. "'He left me at the edge of the jungle two days ago "'to hasten to the aid of my father and Mr. Clayton, "'as he thought,' and he has stayed to rescue Lieutenant Darnot. Of that, you may be sure. Had he been too late to be of service to the lieutenant, he would have been back before now. The fact that he is not back is sufficient proof to me that he is delayed because Lieutenant Darnot is wounded, or has had to follow his captors farther than the village which your sailors attacked. But poor Darnot's uniform and all his belongings were found in that village, Miss Porter, argued the captain and the natives showed great excitement when questioned as to the white man's fate. Yes, Captain, but they did not admit that he was dead, and as for his clothes and accoutrements being in their possession, why, more civilized peoples than these poor savage natives stripped their prisoners of every article of value 
whether they intend killing them or not. Even the soldiers of my own dear South looted not only the living, but the dead. It is strong circumstantial evidence, I will admit, but it is not positive proof. Possibly your forest man himself was captured or killed by the savages, suggested Captain Dufran. The girl laughed. You do not know him, she replied, a little thrill of pride setting her nerves alive at the thought that she spoke of her own. I admit that he would be worth waiting for, this superman of yours, laughed the captain. I most certainly should like to see him. Then wait for him, my dear captain, urged the girl, for I intend doing so. The Frenchman would have been a very much surprised man could he have interpreted the true meaning of the girl's words. They had been walking from the beach toward the cabin as they talked, and now they joined a little group sitting on camp stools in the shade of a great tree beside the cabin. Professor Porter was there, and Mr. Fillander, and Clayton, with Lieutenant Charpentier and two of his brother officers, while Esmeralda hovered in the background, ever and anon venturing opinions and comments with the freedom of an old and much-indulged family servant. The officers arose and saluted as their superior approached, and Clayton surrendered his camp stool to Jane. "'We were just discussing poor Paul's fate,' said Captain Dufran. "'Miss Porter insists that we have no absolute proof of his death. "'Nor have we. "'And on the other hand, she maintains that the continued absence of your omnipotent jungle friend "'indicates that Darnot is still in need of his services, "'either because he is wounded or still as a prisoner in a more distant native village.' "'It has been suggested,' ventured Lieutenant Charpentier, "'that the wild man may have been a member of the tribe of blacks who attacked our party, "'that he was hastening to aid them, his own people.' "'Jane shot a quick glance at Clayton. "'It seems vastly more reasonable,' said Professor Porter. "'I do not agree with you,' objected Mr. Fillander. "'He had ample opportunity to harm us himself, "'or to lead his people against us. "'Instead,' During our long residence here, he has been uniformly consistent in his role of protector and provider. That is true, interjected Clayton. Yet, we must not overlook the fact that except for himself, the only human beings within hundreds of miles are savage cannibals. He was armed precisely as are they, which indicates that he has maintained relations of some nature with them, and the fact that he is but one against possibly thousands suggests that these relations could scarcely have been other than friendly. It seems improbable, then, that he is not connected with them, remarked the captain, possibly a member of this tribe. Otherwise, added another of the officers, how could he have lived a sufficient length of time among the savage denizens of the jungle, brute and human, to have become proficient in woodcraft or in the use of African weapons? "'You are judging him according to your own standards, gentlemen,' said Jane. "'An ordinary white man, such as any of you—pardon me, I did not mean just that. "'Rather, a white man above the ordinary in physique and intelligence could never, I grant you, "'have lived a year alone and naked in this tropical jungle. "'But this man not only surpasses the average white man in strength and agility, "'but as far transcends our trained athletes and strong men—' "'as they surpass a day-old babe. "'And his courage and ferocity in battle "'are those of the wild beast. "'He has certainly won a loyal champion in you, Miss Porter,' "'said Captain Dufran, laughing. "'I am sure that there be none of us here "'but would willingly face death a hundred times "'in its most terrifying forms "'to deserve the tributes of one even half so loyal "'or so beautiful.' "'You would not wonder that I defend him,' said the girl. "'Could you have seen him as I saw him, "'battling in my behalf with that huge, hairy brute? "'Could you have seen him charge the monster "'as a bull might charge a grizzly? "'Absolutely without sign of fear or hesitation, "'you would have believed him more than human. "'Could you have seen those mighty muscles "'nodding under the brown skin? "'Could you have seen them force back those awful fangs? "'You too!' would have thought him invincible. And could you have seen the chivalrous treatment which he accorded a strange girl of a strange race, you would feel the same absolute confidence in him that I feel. 
"'You have won your suit, my fair pleader,' cried the captain. "'This court finds the defendant not guilty, "'and the cruiser shall wait a few days longer "'that he may have an opportunity to come and thank the divine Portia.' "'For the Lord's sake, honey,' cried Esmeralda, "'you don't mean to tell me "'that you're going to stay right here in this here land of carnival animals "'when you all got the opportunity to escapade on that boat? "'Don't you tell me that, honey!' "'Why, Esmeralda, you should be ashamed of yourself,' cried Jane. "'Is this any way to show your gratitude to the man who saved your life twice?' "'Well, Miss Jane, that's all just as you say. "'But that there forest man never did save us to stay here. "'He done save us so we all could get away from here. "'I expect he might be mighty peevish when he find we ain't got no more sense "'than to stay right here after he done give us a chance to get away.' I hoped I'd never have to sleep in this here geological garden another night and listen to all them lonesome noises that comes out of that jumble after dark. I don't blame you a bit, Esmeralda, said Clayton, and you certainly did it off right when you called them lonesome noises. I never have been able to find the right word for them, but that's it, don't you know? Lonesome noises. You and Esmeralda had better go and live on the cruiser, said Jane in fine scorn. What would you think if you had to live all your life in that jungle as our forest man has done? I'm afraid I'd be a blooming bounder as a wild man, laughed Clayton, ruefully. Those noises at night make the hair on my head bristle. I suppose that I should be ashamed to admit it, but it's the truth. I don't know about that, said Lieutenant Charpentier. I never thought much about fear and that sort of thing. Never tried to determine whether I was a coward or brave man. But the other night as we lay in the jungle there after poor Darnot was taken, and those jungle noises rose and fell around us, I began to think that I was a coward indeed. It was not the roaring and growling of the big beasts that affected me so much as it was the stealthy noises, the ones that you heard suddenly close by and then listened vainly for a repetition of, the unaccountable sounds as of a great body moving almost noiselessly, and the knowledge that you didn't know how close it was or whether it were creeping closer after you ceased to hear it. It was those noises. And the eyes. Mon Dieu! I shall see them in the dark forever. The eyes that you see, and those that you don't see, but feel. Ah, they are the worst. All were silent for a moment, and then Jane spoke. And he is out there she said in an awe-hushed whisper. Those eyes will be glaring at him tonight and at your comrade, Lieutenant Darnot. Can you leave them, gentlemen, without at least rendering them the passive succor which remaining here a few days longer might ensure them? Tut, tut, child, said Professor Porter. Captain Dufron is willing to remain, and for my part I am perfectly willing, perfectly willing, as I've always been, to humor your childish whims. We can utilize the morrow in recovering the chest, Professor, suggested Mr. Philander. Quite so, quite so, Mr. Philander. I'd almost forgotten the treasure, exclaimed Professor Porter. Possibly we can borrow some men from Captain Dufran to assist us, and one of the prisoners to point out the location of the chest. Most assuredly, my dear Professor, we are all yours to command said the captain. And so it was arranged that on the next day Lieutenant Charpentier was to take a detail of ten men and one of the mutineers of the Arrow as a guide and unearth the treasure and that the cruiser would remain for a full week in the little harbor. At the end of that time it was to be assumed that Darnot was truly dead and that the forest men would not return while they remained. Then the two vessels were to leave with all the party. Professor Porter did not accompany the treasure-seekers on the following day, but when he saw them returning empty-handed toward noon, he hastened forward to meet them. His usual preoccupied indifference entirely vanished, and in its place a nervous and excited manner. "'Where's the treasure?' he cried to Clayton, while yet a hundred feet separated them. Clayton shook his head. "'Gone,' he said, as he neared the professor. "'Gone? It cannot be!' "'Who could have taken it?' cried Professor Porter. "'God only knows, Professor,' replied Clayton, 
We might have thought the fellow who guided us was lying about the location, but his surprise and consternation on finding no chest beneath the body of the murdered Stipes was too real to be feigned. And then our spade showed us something that had been buried beneath the corpse, for a hole had been there, and it had been filled with loose earth. But who could have taken it? repeated Professor Porter. Suspicion might naturally fall on the men of the cruiser, said Lieutenant Charpentier, but for the fact that Sub-Lieutenant Jean Vies here assures me that no men have had shore leave, that none has been on the shore since we anchored here except under command of an officer. I do not know that you would suspect our men, but I'm glad that there is now no chance for suspicion to fall on them, he concluded. It would never have occurred to me to suspect the men to whom we owe so much, replied Professor Porter, graciously. I would as soon suspect my dear Clayton here, or Mr. Fillander. The Frenchman smiled, both officers and sailors. It was plain to see that a burden had been lifted from their minds. The treasure has been gone for some time, continued Clayton. In fact, the body fell apart as we lifted it, which indicates that whoever removed the treasure did so while the corpse was still fresh, for it was intact when we first uncovered it. There must have been several in the party, said Jane, who had joined them. You remember, it took four men to carry it. By Jove, cried Clayton, that's right. It must have been done by a party of natives. Probably one of them saw the men bury the chest and then returned immediately after with a party of his friends and carried it off. Speculation is futile, said Professor Porter sadly. The chest is gone. We shall never see it again, nor the treasure that was in it. Only Jane knew what the loss meant to her father, and none there knew what it meant to her. Six days later, Captain Dupron announced that they would sail early on the morrow. Jane would have begged for a further reprieve had it not been that she too had begun to believe that her forest lover would return no more. In spite of herself, she began to entertain doubts and fears. The reasonableness of the arguments of these disinterested French officers commenced to convince her against her will. That he was a cannibal, she would never believe, but that he was an adopted member of some savage tribe at length did seem possible to her. She would not admit that he could be dead. It was impossible to believe that that perfect body, so filled with triumphant life, could ever cease to harbor the vital spark, as soon believed that immortality were dust. As Jane permitted herself to harbor these thoughts, others equally unwelcome forced themselves upon her. If he belonged to some savage tribe, he had a savage wife, a dozen of them perhaps, and wild half-caste children. The girl shuddered, and when they told her that the cruiser would sail on the morrow, she was almost glad. It was she, though, who suggested that arms, ammunition, supplies, and comforts be left behind in the cabin, ostensibly for that intangible personality who had signed himself Tarzan of the Apes, and for Darnot, should he still be living, but really, she hoped, for her forest god, even though his feet should prove of clay. And at the last minute, she left a message for him to be transmitted by Tarzan of the Apes. She was the last to leave the cabin, returning on some trivial pretext after the others had started for the boat. She kneeled down beside the bed in which she had spent so many nights and offered up a prayer for the safety of her primeval man. And crushing his locket to her lips, she murmured, I love you, and because I love you, I believe in you. But if I did not believe, still should I love. Had you come back for me, and had there been no other way, I would have gone into the jungle with you forever. Chapter 25 the outpost of the world. With the report of his gun, Darnot saw the door fly open and the figure of a man pitch headlong within onto the cabin floor. The Frenchman, in his panic, raised his gun to fire again into the prostrate form, but suddenly in the half-dusk of the open door he saw that the man was white and in another instant realized that he had shot his friend and protector, Tarzan of the Apes. With a cry of anguish, Darnot sprang to the ape-man's side and, kneeling, lifted the latter's head in his arms, calling Tarzan's name aloud. There was no response, and then Darnot placed his ear above the man's heart. To his joy he heard its steady beating beneath. Carefully he lifted Tarzan to the cot 
and then, after closing and bolting the door, he lighted one of the lamps and examined the wound. The bullet had struck a glancing blow upon the skull. There was an ugly flesh wound, but no signs of a fracture of the skull. Darnot breathed a sigh of relief and went about bathing the blood from Tarzan's face. Soon the cool water revived him, and presently he opened his eyes to look in questioning surprise at Darnot. The latter had bound the wound with pieces of cloth, and as he saw that Tarzan had regained consciousness, he arose and, going to the table, wrote a message which he handed to the ape-man, explaining the terrible mistake he had made and how thankful he was that the wound was not more serious. Tarzan, after reading the message, sat on the edge of the couch and laughed. "'It is nothing,' he said in French, and then, his vocabulary failing him, he wrote, "'You should have seen what Bogani did to me, and Kerchak, and Turkaz, before I killed them. Then you would laugh at such a little scratch.' Darnot handed Tarzan the two messages that had been left for him. Tarzan read the first one through with a look of sorrow on his face. The second one he turned over and over, searching for an opening. He had never seen a sealed envelope before. At length he handed it to Darnot. The Frenchman had been watching him and knew that Tarzan was puzzled over the envelope. How strange it seemed that to a full-grown white man an envelope was a mystery. Darnot opened it and handed the letter back to Tarzan. Sitting on a camp stool, the ape-man spread the written sheet before him and read, To Tarzan of the Apes, Before I leave, let me add my thanks to those of Mr. Clayton for the kindness you have shown in permitting us the use of your cabin. That you never came to make friends with us has been a great regret to us. We should have liked so much to have seen and thanked our host. There is another I should like to thank also, but he did not come back though I cannot believe that he is dead. I do not know his name. He is the great white giant who wore the diamond locket upon his breast. If you know him and can speak his language, carry my thanks to him. Tell him that I waited seven days for him to return. Tell him also that in my home in America, in the city of Baltimore, there will always be a welcome for him if he cares to come. I found a note you wrote me lying among the leaves beneath the tree near the cabin. I do not know how you learned to love me, who have never spoken to me, and I am very sorry if it is true, for I have already given my heart to another. But know that I am always your friend. Jane Porter Tarzan sat with gaze fixed upon the floor for nearly an hour. It was evident to him from the notes that they did not know that he and Tarzan of the Apes were one and the same. I have given my heart to another, he repeated over and over again to himself. Then she did not love him. How could she have pretended love and raised him to such a pinnacle of hope, only to cast him down to such utter depths of despair? Maybe her kisses were only signs of friendship. How did he know, who knew nothing of the customs of human beings? Suddenly he arose and, bidding Darno a good night as he had learned to do, threw himself upon a couch of ferns that had been Jane Porter's. Darnot extinguished the lamp and lay down upon the cot. For a week they did little but rest, Darnot coaching Tarzan in French. At the end of that time, the two men could converse quite easily. One night, as they were sitting within the cabin before retiring, Tarzan turned to Darnot. "'Where is America?' he said. Darnot pointed toward the northwest, "'Maybe thousands of miles across the ocean,' he replied. "'Why? I am going there.' Darnot shook his head. "'It is impossible, my friend,' he said. Tarzan rose and, going to one of the cupboards, returned with a well-thumbed geography. Turning to a map of the world, he said, "'I have never quite understood all this. Explain it to me, please.' When Darnot had done so, showing him that the blue represented all the water on the earth and the bits of other colors, the continents and islands. Tarzan asked him to point out the spot where they now were, and Darno did so. Now point out America, said Tarzan. And as Darno placed his finger upon North America, Tarzan smiled and laid his palm upon the page, spanning the great ocean that lay between the two continents. You see... It is not so very far, he said, scarce the width of my hand. 
Darno laughed. How could he make the man understand? Then he took a pencil and made a tiny point upon the shore of Africa. This little mark, he said, is many times larger upon this map than your cabin is upon the earth. Do you see now how very far it is? Tarzan thought for a long time. Do any white men live in Africa? He asked. Yes. Where are the nearest? Darnot pointed out a spot on the shore just north of them. So close? Asked Tarzan in surprise. Yes, but it is not close. Have they big boats to cross the ocean? Yes. We shall go there tomorrow, announced Tarzan. Again, Darno smiled and shook his head. It is too far. We should die long before we reach them. Do you wish to stay here then forever? Asked Tarzan. No, said Darno. Then we shall start tomorrow. I do not like it here longer. I should rather die than remain here. Well, answered Darno with a shrug, I do not know, my friend but that I also would rather die than remain here. If you go, I shall go with you. It is settled then, said Tarzan. I shall start for America tomorrow. How will you get to America without money? asked Darnot. What is money? inquired Tarzan. It took a long time to make him understand, even imperfectly. How do men get money? he asked at last. They work for it. Very well. I will work for it then. No, my friend, returned Darnot. You need not worry about money, nor need you work for it. I have enough money for two. Enough for twenty. Much more than is good for one man. And you shall have all you need if we ever reach civilization. So on the following day they started north along the shore, each man carrying a rifle and ammunition beside bedding and some food and cooking utensils. The latter seemed to Tarzan a most useless encumbrance, so he threw his away. "'But you must learn to eat cooked food, my friend,' remonstrated Darnot. "'No civilized men eat raw flesh.' "'There will be time enough when I reach civilization,' said Tarzan. "'I do not like the things, and they only spoil the taste of good meat.' For a month they traveled north, sometimes finding food in plenty and again going hungry for days. They saw no signs of natives, nor were they molested by wild beasts. Their journey was a miracle of ease. Tarzan asked questions and learned rapidly. Darnot taught him many of the refinements of civilization, even to the use of a knife and fork, but sometimes Tarzan would drop them in disgust and grasp his food in his strong brown hands, tearing it with his molars like a wild beast. Then Darnot would expostulate with him, saying, You must not eat like a brute, Tarzan, while I am trying to make a gentleman of you. Mon Dieu! Gentlemen, do not thus. It is terrible. Tarzan would grin sheepishly and pick up his knife and fork again, but at heart he hated them. On the journey he told Darnot about the great chest he had seen the sailors bury, of how he had dug it up and carried it to the gathering place of the apes and buried it there. Well, that must be the treasure chest of Professor Porter, said Darnot. It is too bad, but of course you did not know. Then Tarzan recalled the letter written by Jane to her friend, the one he had stolen when they first came to his cabin, and now he knew what was in the chest and what it meant to Jane. Tomorrow we shall go back after it, he announced to Darnot. Go back, exclaimed Darnot. But my dear fellow... We have now been three weeks upon the march. It would require three more to return to the treasure. And then, with that enormous weight which required, you say, four sailors to carry, it would be months before we had again reached this spot. It must be done, my friend, insisted Tarzan. You may go on toward civilization, and I will return for the treasure. I can go very much faster alone. I have a better plan. Tarzan, exclaimed Darnot, we shall go on together to the nearest settlement, and there we will charter a boat and sail back down the coast for the treasure, and so transport it easily. That will be safer and quicker 
and also not require us to be separated. What do you think of that plan? Very well, said Tarzan. The treasure will be there whenever we go for it. And while I could fetch it now and catch up with you in a moon or two, I shall feel safer for you to know that you are not alone on the trail. When I see how helpless you are, Darno, I often wonder how the human race has escaped annihilation all these ages which you tell me about. Why, Saber, single-handed, could exterminate a thousand of you. Darno laughed. You will think more highly of your genus when you have seen its armies and navies, its great cities, and its mighty engineering works. Then you will realize that it is mind and not muscle that makes the human animal greater than the mighty beasts of your jungle. Alone and unarmed, a single man is no match for any of the larger beasts. But if ten men were together, they would combine their wits and their muscles against their savage enemies, while the beast, being unable to reason, would never think of combining against the men. Otherwise, Tarzan of the Apes, how long would you have lasted in the savage wilderness? You are right, Darno, replied Tarzan, for if Kerchak had come to Tublet's aid that night at the Dum-Dum, there would have been an end of me. But Kerchak could never think far enough ahead to take advantage of any such opportunity. Even Kala, my mother, could never plan ahead. She simply ate what she needed when she needed it, and if the supply was very scarce, even though she found plenty for several meals, she would never gather any ahead. I remember that she used to think it very silly of me to burden myself with extra food upon the march, though she was quite glad to eat it with me, if the way chanced to be barren of sustenance. "'Then you knew your mother, Tarzan?' asked Darno in surprise. "'Yes, she was a great, fine ape, larger than I, and weighing twice as much.' "'And your father?' asked Darno. "'I did not know him. Kala told me he was a white ape, and hairless like myself. I know now that he must have been a white man.' Darno looked long and earnestly at his companion. "'Tarzan,' he said at length. It is impossible that the ape, Kala, was your mother. If such a thing can be, which I doubt, you would have inherited some of the characteristics of the ape. But you have not. You are pure man, and I should say the offspring of highly bred and intelligent parents. Have you not the slightest clue to your past? Not the slightest, replied Tarzan. No writings in the cabin that might have told something of the lives of its original inmates? I have read everything that was in the cabin, with the exception of one book, which I know now to be written in a language other than English. Possibly you can read it. Tarzan fished the little black diary from the bottom of his quiver and handed it to his companion. Darno glanced at the title page. It is the diary of John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, an English nobleman, and it is written in French, he said. Then he proceeded to read the diary that had been written over twenty years before, and which recorded the details of the story which we already know, the story of adventure, hardships, and sorrow of John Clayton and his wife Alice from the day they left England until an hour before he was struck down by Kerchak. Darnot read aloud. At times his voice broke, and he was forced to stop reading for the pitiful hopelessness that spoke between the lines. Occasionally he glanced at Tarzan, but the ape-man sat upon his haunches like a carven image, his eyes fixed upon the ground. Only when the little babe was mentioned did the tone of the diary alter from the habitual note of despair which had crept into it by degrees after the first two months upon the shore. Then the passages were tinged with a subdued happiness that was even sadder than the rest. One entry showed an almost hopeful spirit. Today our little boy is six months old. He is sitting in Alice's lap beside the table where I am writing. A happy, healthy, perfect child. Somehow, against even all reason, I seem to see him a grown man, taking his father's place in the world, the second John Clayton, and bringing added honors to the house of Greystoke. There, as though to give my prophecy the weight of his endorsement, he has grabbed my pen in his chubby fists and with his ink-begrimed little fingers has placed the seal of his tiny fingerprints upon the page. And there, on the margin of the page, were the partially blurred imprints of four wee fingers and the outer half of the thumb. 
When Darnot had finished the diary, the two men sat in silence for some minutes. Well, Tarzan of the Apes, what think you? asked Darnot. Does this little book clear up the mystery of your parentage? Why, men, you are Lord Greystoke. The book speaks of but one child, Tarzan replied. Its little skeleton lay in the crib, where it died crying for nourishment from the first time I entered the cabin until Professor Porter's party buried it with its father and mother beside the cabin. No, that was the babe the book speaks of, and the mystery of my origin is deeper than before, for I have thought much of late of the possibility of that cabin having been my birthplace. I am afraid that Kala spoke the truth, Tarzan concluded sadly. Darnot shook his head. He was unconvinced, and in his mind had sprung the determination to prove the correctness of his theory, for he had discovered the key which alone could unlock the mystery or consign it forever to the realms of the unfathomable. A week later, the two men came suddenly upon a clearing in the forest. In the distance were several buildings, surrounded by a strong palisade. Between them and the enclosure stretched a cultivated field in which a number of negroes were working. The two halted at the edge of the jungle. Tarzan fitted his bow with a poisoned arrow, but Darnot placed a hand upon his arm. "'What would you do, Tarzan?' he asked. "'They will try to kill us if they see us,' replied Tarzan. "'I prefer to be the killer.' "'Maybe they are friends,' suggested Darnot. "'They are black.' was Tarzan's only reply, and again he drew back his shaft. "'You must not, Tarzan,' cried Darnot. "'White men do not kill wantonly. "'Mon Dieu, but you have much to learn. "'I pity the ruffian who crosses you, my wild man, "'when I take you to Paris. "'I will have my hands full keeping your neck from beneath the guillotine.' "'Tarzan lowered his bow and smiled. "'I do not know why I should kill backs black there in my jungle.' yet not kill them here. Suppose Numa, the lion, should spring out upon us. I should say then, I presume, Good morning, Monsieur Numa. How is Madame Numa, eh? Wait until the blacks spring upon you, replied Darnot. Then you may kill them. Do not assume that men are your enemies until they prove it. Come, said Tarzan. Let us go and present ourselves to be killed. And he started straight across the field, his head held high, and the tropical sun beating upon his smooth brown skin. Behind him came Darnot, clothed in some garments which had been discarded at the cabin by Clayton when the officers of the French cruiser had fitted him out in more presentable fashion. Presently one of the workers looked up, and beholding Tarzan, turned, shrieking, toward the palisade. In an instant the air was filled with cries of terror from the fleeing gardeners, but before any had reached the palisade, a white man emerged from the enclosure, rifle in hand, to discover the cause of the commotion. What he saw brought his rifle to his shoulder, and Tarzan of the Apes would have felt cold lead once again had not Darnot cried loudly to the man with the leveled gun. Do not fire! We are friends! Halt, then, was the reply. Stop, Tarzan. He thinks we are enemies. Tarzan dropped into a walk, and together he and Darnot advanced toward the white man by the gate. The latter eyed them in puzzled bewilderness. "'What manner of men are you?' he asked in French. "'White men,' replied Darnot. "'We have been lost in the jungle for a long time.' The man had lowered his rifle and now advanced with outstretched hand. "'I am Father Constantine of the French mission here,' he said, "'and I am glad to welcome you.' "'This is Monsieur Tarzan, Father Constantine,' replied Darnot, indicating the ape-man, and as the priest extended his hand to Tarzan, Darnot added, And I am Paul Darnot of the French Navy. Father Constantine took the hand which Tarzan extended in imitation of the priest's act, while the latter took in the superb physique and handsome face in one quick, keen glance. And thus came Tarzan of the Apes to the first outpost of civilization. For a week they remained there, and the ape-man, keenly observant, learned much of the ways of men. Meanwhile, black women sewed white duck garments for himself and Darnot, so that they might continue their journey properly clothed. Coming next week, Chapter 26, The Height of Civilization.
Five stars, Tarzan of the Apes. Having enjoyed the black-and-white Tarzan movies of the 50s and 60s in my youth, and then witnessed my children's love of Disney's animated version, it's been delightful to listen to the rich origins of the Tarzan legend, as told by your podcast. The quality of the narration is first class, and adds to this wonderfully detailed classic piece of American fictional literature. Thank you. That one from Feldrick, U.S. And this one, Boot, five stars. Wonderful read, Mr. Hagedorn. Your narration is really great. I can't hardly wait for next week to hear more. That's Boot 076, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Tarzan 1516. Five stars. Finally. Thanks, John. LOL, Market Pop. And this one, five stars. Love it, but I can't believe how you dare to leave Jane in the jungle with that dangerous animal thirsting for her flesh. And to think, we'll have to wait till next week to hear the results? If something was to happen to those two young ladies, we'll never forgive you. Love this story and others that I've listened to. Thanks again. That one from Keith Mac 59 Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, rest assured, John is a reader. Five stars. For the first time in my rabidly diffuse life, I find myself enslaved to a periodical episode. I've never cared a whit about TV shows and the like, but was recently ensnared by the likes of John's reading of Treasure Island. I found myself waiting patiently, who am I kidding, impatiently, for the following Sunday to release the next much-anticipated installment of The Great Tale. Now I'm equally ensnared by a story which I've often dismissed as silly. Don't get me wrong, it's silly, but quite good. As is the storyteller's talent and expression. This Tarzan has captured my imagination. He is engaging and entertaining. Thank you, John, for all your fine work. I know you have many irons in the fire, but have you considered T-shirts? I would gladly wear my 1001 about town. That from Thaddeus Von Awesome, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, another hit, five stars. Another hit by Mr. Hagedorn, five stars. No doubt, every Sunday night I patiently anticipate its release. That one from History Liker, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, love it, five stars. Great voice. That one from Lubby502, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, all stories, five stars. Outstanding. I can hardly wait for the next broadcast. That one from Fritz19, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, beautiful, five stars. Awesome. A must-have in your podcast selection. That one from Chester316, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to sit down and write out these reviews. They're very much appreciated, and I know that new potential fans looking at reviews really do appreciate these, and it helps them find our show. I also wanted to let you listeners know, especially you Android listeners, that you can leave reviews successfully at castbox.fm. at C-A-S-T-B-O-X dot F-M. Actually, they're a very good podcast app. They will send you new episodes as they're released, and they also contain the entire archive file. So it's a great, great podcast host. Give it a try, castbox.fm, if you're an Android listener or if you've never subscribed. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Glad you're enjoying Tarzan. I know I'm enjoying it. This is the first time, believe it or not, I've ever read the story. We've all heard of Tarzan and maybe seen different expressions of it. But I had never read the original, and I'm finding that the original is very, very enjoyable. Anyway, hope you are too. Glad to see through these reviews that you are. We'll be back next week, Sunday night, with a new episode, and they're only getting better at this point. We'll be back soon. Thank you.